Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 339 of FSTOP, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week, I had a wonderful time talking with Kat Kokolet, a digital artist, painter, and online educator. Kat's artwork adorns countless products in stores like Target, Urban Outfitters, Anthropology, Barnes & Noble, and lots more. She has become quite an expert at finding ways to market her artwork and designs to ensure that she retains a steady passive income while enjoying the digital nomad lifestyle. This episode will be a huge boon to anyone struggling to market their artwork, so stay tuned because I think that Kat's perhaps one of the most well-spoken guests that we've had on the show. All right, let's get to this week's episode with Kat Kokolet. All right, Kat Kokolet, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I One of my former guests and I, we were talking before this, I can't remember who it was, but somebody was smart enough to recommend you for the podcast, and so here we are. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, if you find that name, let me know. Yeah, I will definitely do that. So, you know, it was interesting. Uh, as soon as we scheduled this, I started following you on Instagram just to kind of get a feel for you know, what you do. And I've been amazed that you're like, so check this out. These are going to be in Target next week and stuff like that. I'm like, wow, that's impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, that's super cool. So that may be a good segue for you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are. For sure. Yeah. So um, my name is Kat Cocolette and I'm the founder of Cat Coke, which is my creative business. So I am not a photographer like most of the guests on your podcast, uh, but I am an artist and an educator. So I make a living licensing my artwork to big brands like you mentioned, Target, um, Urban Outfitters, Home Goods, Anthropology, um, things like that. And probably the, the unique thing about me is that I also travel the world full time as a digital nomad. So I'm going on, let me think, one, two, three, eight, eight years, I think now of living out of a suitcase and just creating artwork as I go. So yeah, I teach online classes, showing other creatives how they can pretty much do the exact same thing I'm doing. So I have art tutorials online with watercolor, acrylic, digital drawing, um, plus creative entrepreneurship classes that dive into art licensing, surface design. Uh, Those are the two categories that I'm in, Uh, social media marketing, the things that you need to, uh, the knowledge you need to have to run a successful creative business. So yeah, before I got started with all of that though, I lived in Kansas City. I used to work as a designer at a small branding agency. And yeah, I guess while I worked there, I always just thought that agency life was going to be my entire career trajectory. But that really shifted when I started up a side hustle, selling my work online, which is now kind of that that full hustle, if you will. That's amazing. So I'm curious, you know, you seem like you've got it all figured out on the business side of things. And in the photography world, especially in nature and landscape photography, for whatever reason, I think because we're full of introverts and people who are just not very, they don't like being around people very much. You know, typically there's a lot. Oh, of, I know artists. <laughs> yeah, artists in general, actually. But, uh, you know, the, it feels, I feel like there's not a lot of business savvy and, or acumen in this space. And so I'm curious for you, how did you obtain that? 
you know, a lot of it was baby steps along the way. Um, I also took some business classes when I was studying at university. I studied um, illustration and graphic design. I double majored. But then on the side, I was taking um, business classes just to learn the, the fundamentals and the basics. And that helps me a little bit. But what really, really paved the path forward was just the baby steps of actually doing it. So actually getting into the business, starting out really slow, I grew very slowly and seeking help when I needed it. Um, I met with a CPA for the first time when I was getting my business off the ground. That answered a lot of questions and helped me with a lot of things I was doing incorrectly. Uh, luckily, I got that sorted early on. Um, same thing with a financial advisor. I hired a financial advisor to kind of help me with this path as well. So seeking guidance when I need it has been a, a, a big move forward. And now, um, you know, since I, I travel around as a digital nomad, I'm enmeshed in a pretty strong entrepreneurial community as well. And so, yeah, having a network in place, having resources, friends I can ask when I run into, um, you know, snafus. It's you don't learn everything all at once by any means, but you slowly pick it up as you go. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's sounds very familiar to myself. So, <laughs> well, so even even though you're not a photographer, um, you're obviously a very successful artist. So I thought that you would have a ton of insight for our listeners who are mostly landscape and nature photographers and people who dabble in other types of photography as well. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your journey as an artist and then what led you to where you are today. Sure. So, you know, like I mentioned, I never really sought out to become an entrepreneur. Um, I was working full time designing branding, websites, art directing, photo shoots, all that kind of stuff when I was working in Kansas City. But when I came home from work, um, I would just relax and recharge by painting with watercolors. It wasn't something that I considered monetizing at all. It was just something that gave me some sort of creative release that didn't involve looking at a screen. You know, being at a nine to five job, all you do is stare at a computer. So coming home, doing some analog paintings was the perfect way to relax. But the way that that sort of transitioned into earning an income with those watercolors was just by posting to Instagram. So this was back in like 2013, 2014-ish. Uh, what I started doing was taking pictures of the paintings I was doing when I came home from work, posting them to Instagram, and my audience started growing from just friends and family to complete strangers who followed me because they liked my artwork, which was super cool. And I was like, oh, awesome. I have, you know, random followers on, on the internet. And that's kind of all I thought of it. And it wasn't very long before people started asking where they could purchase originals or art prints of the things that I was watercoloring. And so that's when I realized that I had this opportunity in front of me of making a little bit of side cash, which I desperately needed at the time. So yeah, I started researching how I could sell originals, how I could um, print them, package them, ship them out to customers. Do I need an e-commerce site? And I just, it was just a lot of barriers. You know, I was working 40 hours a week. I didn't have a lot of time to have some side business going. And so that's what led me to finding a company that would do all of that on my behalf. And that's where print on demand comes into play. So print on demand is a business model where um, you, the creator, whether you're, you're a photographer, artist, what, what have you, um, upload your designs to their platform. The one that I started out with is called Society6. And so what I would do is, let's just say it's a painting of donuts, for example. Um, I would scan them into my computer, digitally edit them, upload them to Society6, and enable them on all of the products that Society6 offers, like you know, art prints, 
coffee mugs, t-shirts, literally anything. And then customers that are familiar with Society6 and used that website uh, would purchase it. And then I would earn a royalty of sales. So yeah, that's kind of what I started off doing. And it was, you know, pretty slow to start out the first month. I made $9, but that $9 was pretty mind-blowing to me because it was the first time I ever sold a, a piece of artwork before. You know, that was just not in my scope of, of reality. It was like, I'm a designer, I went to school for design, and now I'm working as a designer. And so the idea of monetizing artwork just never, never really clicked until, you know, that first month when I made them $9, and then I, you know, kept it up. And by like, uh, I think about month six, I was earning more than I was at my actual nine to five job on a month by month basis. So it started out, you know, a little slow, nine bucks, but by six months in, um, it was turning out to be pretty lucrative. So that's kind of that the time when I started kind of envisioning what possibilities might arise um, if this, you know, side hustle suddenly became my full focus. Because at the time, you know, I was squeezing in time and night on like nights and weekends uh, to work on it. But if I had 40 hours a week extra to focus on growing that, um, what what could potentially come of it? So that's that's when I left my job and decided to full time pursue um, this whole, this whole side thing of being an artist that licenser, licenses their artwork. I love it. And, you know, as you were talking, I was trying to envision what that would look like today. Cause you said 2013 and I'm thinking back <clears throat> to 2013 and Instagram. And it was one of, it was like the golden era of social media, because if you were just consistent and you posted halfway decent stuff, you would get a huge following probably because not a lot of people were doing that. And now I'm curious, do you think that same approach would be effective or would you have to work harder or would you weave in different strategies if someone was trying to pull off what you pulled off? So what worked for me back in those early days, 2013, 2014, you, you cannot rinse and repeat that exact same process and, ex and expect it to work the same today. Um, but you can take aspects of that approach. And so the parts of that that are still relevant today and are great ideas for, for growing your business are putting yourself out there, putting your artwork out there, being consistent and persistent. Um, I faced a lot of rejections, especially when I got involved in licensing. So when I started transitioning from print on demand, well, not even transitioning, because I still sell through print on demand, but expanding onto art licensing, and that's where those stores like Target and Urban Outfitters come into play. When I was reaching out and pitching companies for licensing, I got a lot of rejections. I got more no's than I got yeses, um, but what mattered were the, the yeses. Like, that is what turned into income. That's what turned into brand building. And so that idea of persistence and having a tough skin and putting yourself out there, even when you know you're probably going to get rejected, uh, that's, that's the kind of thing that you can still apply today that you is going to help you see an impact. Yeah, I agree with that. And then I have a follow-up to the print-on-demand side of things. So I'm curious, first question is, uh, do you think that print-on-demand is still a strong, vibrant, viable way to make an income? And my second question is, do you think that it translates for photography? I'll answer your second question first. It, it absolutely translates to photography. If you get on some of the top print-on-demand websites like um, Redbubble, Society6, uh, you'll see a lot of phot uh, photography, especially sold as art prints, I think would probably be one of the biggest product categories for photography. Actually, wall art in general, their canvases, their wood wall art, their framed pieces. So yes, um, all you have to do is get on any print-on-demand website, especially one that would 
like relate with your own audience. And you can actually filter by photography to get an idea of what the top sellers are. You can even sort by best sellers to just give you a, a really good glimpse of what type of artwork is selling well. And there's quite a bit of photography up there. And then your first question, uh, is it still a viable business model today? Yes and no. So it's not as much of a, it's not as lucrative as it was back in 2014 when I opened up my shop on Society6. Way back then, there were very few content creators like me, but now it's a much more saturated space. And so there's pros and cons there because as print on demand websites grow with their, you know, with their audience, um, more customers, they also grow with their, with their content creators. So everything's kind of rising at once, but it's a lot trickier to get found. The competition is much fiercer. So when I was getting started, you know, I'm competing with maybe a few thousand artists. Today, there's hundreds of thousands on that one website alone. But uh, there are other ways that you can be benefited in your uh, business by print on demand. And one of the biggest ones that's still relevant for me right now is just exposure. So a lot of print on demand websites have their SEO like really, really figured out. And so uh, when you're using keyword tags, oh, it's insane. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's incredible. But yeah, so when you have your your keyword tags, the way you describe your art, your titles, that all just gets into that SEO juice. So someone can find my artwork just by Google Images, not necessarily through Society6. I mean, that's where it's hosted, but it can kind of float around um, outside of that. And so I've actually had several licensing deals come in because the brands found my artwork on Society6 first and then reached out to me directly. So if you are going to go that route of using print-on-demand in your business, I would kind of look at it as a two-tongued approach. It's, it's one, maybe you can earn some royalties. That'd be fantastic. It's tough. You know, it's competitive. Um, but then two, it also uh, builds up brand exposure and it makes you much more reachable. So if you are going to set up a shop on print-on-demand or if you already have one, uh, my best advice there is to make sure your contact information, your email address, links to social, website if you have one, is all displayed right there in your bio so that if someone stumbles upon your work and they want to reach out to you about maybe commissions or licensing or some other opportunity, um, it's really, really easy for them to do. So removing as many barriers as possible for people being able to contact you has benefited me a lot in my business. Or you could be really um, stubborn and knuckleheaded like me and try to beat those companies at SEO. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going? <clears throat> Actually, um, there's a couple of keywords that I've compete with them on but it's you know you have to work so hard to pull it off it's it's hard it changes a lot um it's something that you know that side of the business is something that's just not one of my strong suits and so what i found is by you know aligning myself with a company or brand that does do that really well that's been that's been to my benefit so there's a lot of things in business that i either don't care to do or i'm, I'm just really bad at doing and <laughs> that's where these partnerships can be really really beneficial yeah, so uh, when you transitioned from your full-time job at the design agency to doing and working on your side hustle, when did you realize that it was the right decision? Oh, probably like after after I quit my job? Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, immediately. So the, the day that I put in my two weeks notice, I also impulsed booked a, a ticket to Southeast Asia to spend six weeks solo backpacking. So I was, uh, I was, pretty, I was pretty desperate to have some, uh, some freedom. So yeah, um, you know, I worked those final two weeks and then I packed up for a trip to Southeast Asia and I just spent six weeks 
um, without my computer, without my art supplies, just traveling through the Philippines, Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam, Laos, and it was a really incredible trip. Um, unfortunately, I did not buy a one-way ticket, so I did come home, and I finished out my lease in Kansas City, packed up all my belongings, put them in my brother's basement, put the things I absolutely needed into a backpack, and then I did buy that one-way ticket, and I went back to Thailand thinking like, okay, I'm just going to go here, kind of check out the digital nomad scene in Chiang Mai, see how it goes. And maybe after a few months, you know, I'll get the travel bug out of my system and I'll, I'll come home and be serious about life. And that was, that was almost eight years ago. And here I am still living out of a suitcase. So uh, I think I definitely made the right decision for me. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, well, to that point, you know, you mentioned to me in our correspondence that your artwork is directly inspired by your travels. And I was curious if you could tell us a little bit more what that actually looks like uh, in practice. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's huge in, in terms of my art portfolio. I just get so much inspiration from the places that I've visited and traveled to. So I'll, I'll just walk you through an example, I guess. So a few years ago, I did a hiking trip in Vietnam. It was a village to village hiking trip. I invited my parents and my aunt to come join me. It was a lot of fun. And I took pictures of all of the, I mean, everything, everything we saw in the jungle as we were hiking. And what I did when I returned to my apartment in Chiang Mai was just pull up the photos I'd taken just with my iPhone, nothing professional, and then use those photos as references for my watercolors. And so uh, one of the motifs that I painted after that trip was these, um, these big blooming fan palms. They kind of look like hands, but they're, um, yeah, they're, they're just really beautiful plants. And so I painted those in watercolor and then fast forward like four years later, they got picked up for bedding in Target. So it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, being able to like walk through the aisles at Target, see, you know, duvet covers and pillowcases um, of these watercolor fan palms I had painted from a family hiking trip in Vietnam years earlier. And they actually also, Urban Outfitters picked those up too for these metallic gold throw pillows. So that was just, you know, one you know, photo I snapped on this hiking trip, decided to paint it later, and then it just became a home run in my portfolio. I've also gotten inspiration from color palettes, uh, color palettes I find in nature especially. When I was living in Bali, I used to spend almost every evening just walking along the beach. Those sunsets were in incredible. So again, took a lot of photos just with my iPhone, and then, yeah, pulled those color palettes from my photos into an acrylic kind of color block painting that I created of sort of an abstract sunset. And then, yeah, that also wound up in the aisles of Target. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like my, my portfolio is kind of this representation of my travels around the world. That's really cool. Um, I'm super jealous because I don't think I know any photographer that has anything that's represented in Target or Urban Outfitters. So that's awesome. <laughs> you know, both those companies do license uh, photography, so it's, it's definitely an option. And same thing, this is actually my advice to a lot of my students that are interested in surface design. I recommend that you just, whatever store that you wanna be selling through, you just go in, let's just do Target because we're already talking about it. You go in there and go find the art prints, the, the wall art section, flip it over and then see who the manufacturer is. And those are the people you wanna reach out to about licensing deals. I don't work with Target directly. I work with the product manufacturers that then sell into Target. So yeah, that's, that's what a lot of my surface design students do. They go into the stationery and journal aisles, and then they you know, look at the back of the uh, journals, see who the manufacturer is, reach out to them, and then hopefully pursue uh, licensing deals by pitching their portfolio. So you can do the same thing with photography. 
All right. Well, let's let's talk more about that because I I'm I'm guessing people listening are like, that sounds really good. I'm gonna I'm gonna try that. But I bet <laughs> there's about 15 steps between that whole looking at the back and pitching your portfolio to actually being able to close the deal. So maybe walk us through some of your tips and trips t- tricks to actually successfully licensing your artwork. I mean, yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. So for me, I think one thing that's helped out a lot is the fact that I'm pretty prolific with my artwork. I draw and paint and do digital illustrations all the time. So my portfolio is just constantly growing. So I think probably one of the reasons that I've had success in art licensing is because I have just kind of done the shotgun approach. I have such a huge body of work that, you know, chances are if I'm working with a licensor already or, or approaching one in the first place, I can be like, hey, look, I have thousands of designs in my portfolio. You're going to find one that you're probably going to like. So yeah, having a, having a large body of artwork helps quite a bit. Also, um, kind of what I was touching on earlier is reaching out to companies that I want to work with and then not being afraid of rejections because you'll get those a lot. When I used to pitch, I don't pitch as much anymore because now I'm working with an agent that represents me. And so now they go out on my behalf and pitch, which is great because now I don't have to deal with that. But for about the first half of this you know, entrepreneurship career, um, I was doing it all solo. So the way that I would structure those pitching emails would just be the only goal is to get a response. So if I'm emailing a buyer for Urban Outfitters, for example, uh, the only thing I need them to do is just respond to my email. So rather than throwing the whole kit and caboodle at them of, you know, here's a PDF with 3000 designs and here's all my terms and this is blah, blah, blah. It's just like, hey, I'd love to work with you. My name is Kat. Give a quick introduction and then attach like, you know, three images or something and be like, hey, if you want to hear more, um, just let me know and we can get the conversation going. And that's a much easier email for someone to respond to than something that's just entirely overwhelming. So that that part helps helps quite a bit as well. I love that approach. Okay, so then they write back and they say, yeah, that, that sounds great. Then what's next? All the brands I work with already do licensing. So I made this mistake early on trying to reach out to brands that didn't understand licensing and they, that just wasn't part of their business model. And it's just really tough. It's like pulling teeth. Um, I've never had to send over my own contract. I always, so I know that's a barrier to entry for a lot of artists or designers or photographers that want to get involved in licensing. They're like, how do I do the contract and the legal stuff? The answer is you don't, you don't really have to. All of the brands I work with are already familiar with licensing. They already have their own contract written up. All you have to do is review it, make sure everything looks good. Definitely push back a little bit, get some better terms and, um, and then kind of go from there. So So another, you know, now that I'm talking about contracts, which usually sounds boring, but they can be fun. Another big, big bonus that I would always recommend to put in your contract, if it's a licensing deal, if it's a buyout, no matter what, um, is to have your signature or your, your logo, your branding, something that indicates who created that piece always on what you're licensing. And so that way you get that brand recognition, you get more deals because people find you through that. Um, I mean, that was so, I mean, that was just a, a huge part of my success early on. My first licensing deal was with Urban Outfitters and I asked that my signature stay in place on the art print that they were licensing. And you know, they had no problem with it. They were like, that's fine. 
And I got so many more licensing deals. They just kind of snowballed after that because my signature, well, one, it's legible. And two, it's SEO friendly and unique. It's Cat Coke. It's all one word. It's Cat Cocolette is my name. So Cat Coke is my brand. And yeah, just by having my signature um, very visible and present, um, if someone purchased that art print from Urban Outfitters and they wanted to find more of my work, if you Google C-A-T-C-O-Q, you're just going to find my stuff. There's there's no other cat cokes out there. So that's what I mean by being legible so they even know what to type into Google. Um, and then also having it be something unique so that you're not just going to get lost in the, you know, the chaos of the internet. So that those two things have been pretty important for me as well. For certain products, uh, licensors will push back on not wanting to have my signature. And I'm okay with that when it makes sense. Like wallpaper, you don't want to see my signature repeating every six inches. That would be obnoxious. And for situations like that, there's always workarounds like, okay, in that case, my logo will be on the packaging itself. So uh, my brand is still affiliated with that product, even if it's not going to be, you know, plastered all over someone's wall. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so, because uh, I'm trying to, I'm thinking like a photographer here, and you know, I've done a few licenses in the past, but typically it's been, you know, for a single image, for a single, you know, installation, that kind of a thing. Whereas I feel like the approach you're taking is is probably very dependent upon volume, and so I'm really curious if you could maybe speak to, without at the risk of boring our listeners, but I, I'm, I'm really curious myself, so <laughs> I'm not bored at all, but I'm curious about um, can, what, what kind of terms are you looking for in terms of, you know, how to structure the licensing deal in terms of, you know, how many, mm. and how, like, how, how do you know that it's a good deal for you? So, I, okay, by the way, if you're listening to this and you're just like, oh my God, I don't know anything about licensing deals, that's okay <laughs> because I, I didn't either. So when I was first getting started, um, I made a lot of mistakes too. But after, you know, what I'm in that eight, nine years of doing this now, um, I've, I've gotten to a much better place. So yeah, I'm just going to caveat that. I didn't just inherently know this knowledge. I learned it over time, mostly through mistakes. So <laughs> yeah, licensing deals. The, the number one thing that for licensing deals, it's either gonna be an exclusive or a non-exclusive. Exclusive means, we're gonna go back to Target, they're just gonna be my, my uh, example for all of this because everyone knows them and they're easy. So Target, they always want exclusive deals, which means if they're licensing a piece of artwork I did, uh, they don't want any other company to be selling that same design on the same product. Makes sense and they can definitely state those terms because they're Target and everybody wants to work with Target. So um, that's not a deal breaker for me though. Um, well, just real quick, non-exclusive means the company doesn't care. You can use that artwork on as many different places, different products, different companies as you want to. There's, there's no restrictions. But a lot of the contracts that I enter are exclusive contracts, which means Let's just do, I recently did a illustration of a, a panda on my iPad using a drawing app called Procreate. And it got picked up for wall decals, like, uh, like wallpaper, except they're just like stickers for the wall that peel off. And that company wanted exclusive, but they didn't really care about any other product except wall decals because that's what the company sold. So if that same artwork is being sold on a pillow or a coffee mug or a t-shirt, that company doesn't really care. So that's the first thing that you define if someone wants exclusivity. You're like, okay, it's exclusive, but only on the product that you're actually using. Um, in this case, it was a wall decal. The other thing that you can also define with exclusivity is going to be how long they have that, that exclusivity for. And a lot of people overlook this, but it's, it's like the most important thing if you're signing any sort of contract, whether it's licensing or anything, there should be term limits on, on 
on everything. So if I'm doing an exclusive, two to three years, usually two is about industry norm. So I'm like, okay, exclusive, but only for two years. And then the uh, the third thing is going to be the territory. So the company I worked with, with wall decals, they only sold in the US. So they didn't care if it was being sold on wall decals in London because they didn't have any brand placement in London. So stipulating in the contract exclusive, by product type, by duration, two years, and by territory, US and Canada only, um, it suddenly opens up a lot more room for me because now I can use that same design on literally everything that doesn't meet that very, very strict criteria. And so that's just a way of me being able to leverage that same piece and get way more bang for my buck from it because if one person picked it up or company picked it up for licensing, then it's probably a, a commercially viable and potentially really lucrative piece that more people might be interested in. So don't sell yourself too short. Don't just give up your rights. Um, buyouts is another thing to look out for. Some artists do these, which is where you, in addition to selling the piece of artwork, you're also selling the copyright, your own intellectual property, so you no longer own the IP to that design. Some people do it. I don't personally. I prefer the licensing business model where I retain the IP and then royalties kind of trickle in over time. Um, but some artists, if you want to make a quick buck, you can do a buyout, which is where you sell the IP. So if you took that gorgeous photo behind you of the uh, sunset and the mountains, if someone really, really wanted to own the IP to that and you were OK with selling it, which you shouldn't because it's on the cover of your book, um, then you would just right. put some really, really high price point on that because you're not just selling the art print, but you're also selling the rights to it. And the rights are more valuable than anything. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, man, I have so many questions now. So, <laughs> so with the licensing approach, you're looking at a royalty model, basically, where, whereas, you know, it's like every time they use your, your image or your art creation for that product, you get a piece of the pie, so to speak. So um, I'm guessing that those rates vary quite a bit in the industry, but maybe you could kind of give us a feel for what people might expect. Yeah, and this is something when I was first getting started, I, I was appalled and offended by. The first company that reached out for licensing asked for, they said they would offer me 5%. And I was just like, they're taking advantage of me because I'm a new artist and I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, hell no, I'm not gonna do that. And now I'm just like, oh yeah, 5%, you know, that, that, that'd be a pretty good deal because now I'm, I'm more aware of the industry and what the rates are. But um, yeah, just to give you an example, print-on-demand websites, um, that's websites like Society6, Redbubble, Contrato, Printful, Teespring. I mean, there's, there's a million out there. Uh, generally, 10% is the um, industry average for print-on-demand, which is also going to be about the highest you get. Markups for wall art can go a little bit higher, though, on print-on-demand. Um, you can set your own rates on a lot of POD sites. So I put my wall art, which is canvases, prints, framed art, all that kind of stuff. I mark it up at a 30% royalty rate. And coincidentally, on the licensing side, wall art also gives me my biggest return, which is anywhere between 7 to 15%, which is pretty good. Um, some product categories are more give you better royalties than others. Uh, stationary is pretty low. Like stationary can go with like 2%. 
Um, so the important thing is like if you are going to pursue licensing and you're working with a company and they reach out and offer a rate before you get just completely offended by how low that, that percentage is, uh, just do a Google search and find out like what the norms are for that industry or product category. And then that way you'll have a better standing. And, you know, to kind of piggyback off of that, whenever I'm working with a new contract and they give me their licensing rate, that's one of the things I push back on in the contract. Just, you know, whatever, whatever they say they can do, they can always go a little bit higher. So if someone offers me, you know, 7%, I'll be like, oh, for this kind of, you know, scope of a project, my range is usually in the 9 to 11.5%. And then we meet in the middle at like, you know, 8.5% or something like that. And it sounds like, you know, you're, you're sitting here like debating over these like percentages of a percent, you know, like decimals of a percent. But um, when you're selling at scale, which is what licensing is, you're selling just massive quantities of work, um, a percentage point can make the difference of, of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. So pushing back on contracts in a, you know, in a friendly business-like way is definitely the path forward for um, when you're doing those contract negotiations or, um, yeah, working with a, new, with a new licensor for the first time. Okay. And... I'm thinking about a situation where exclusivity is involved and you're trying to figure out, okay, they're going to give me 5%, but they want exclusivity and I'm the, I can't use it for any other product. What are some of the pieces of information that you try to get access to in order to determine if that is a good business decision for you in terms of maybe like how many of these units do you anticipate selling or like how do you make those decisions so for something like that um if i am going to push back on the royalty percentage which i always will uh one way i'll justify the number that i give back to them is if they want exclusivity or not because if someone wants an exclusive agreement then they've got they have to pay a little bit more for that because that's that's taking away potential income from me um by giving by granting them an exclusive license for maybe an entire product category um, i mentioned i usually stipulate by product like it's exclusive on a coffee mug or a sticker um, but some companies do want the entire product category like stationary which is a lot of different products and so if someone does want exclusivity for a product or product category especially, then I'm definitely gonna ask that they bump up that royalty percentage and then I'll explain why. I'll explain it's because it's, it's uh, an exclusive agreement. This is what I deem as fair because I'm, you know, I'm not gonna tell them because I'm losing out on other opportunities, but it's, it's definitely implied. So you can definitely get a higher royalty percentage on an exclusive versus a non-exclusive for that reason. And then like, how do you know if the income is like, is there any way to predict how much money you have to make on a particular license? I usually just ask them, to be honest. Um, okay. So I have this, uh, you know, when someone reaches out about licensing, my response is, you know, a series of questions. And one of those questions is, how many, how many products do you predict selling? What is the sales price for the product? And how much, uh, and what's the royalty rate you're offering? And then That's at that point, math. it's... Yeah, it's just easy math at that point. If it's going to be like a bigger deal and they have like, they want to do like a full collection and they want to have different products and, and all of that and the math's getting a little complicated, then I'll just straight up ask, how much do other artists that um, have entered similar agreements with you, how much are they making from this? And um, yeah, every time I've asked, I, I get straight up answers. No one's been like, oh, I can't tell you, that's confidential. Because I'm not asking who made the money, I'm just asking for a similar deal, like what can I expect to make out of this? And um, I think a lot of people, especially artists, are 
a little nervous about talking about money and asking money questions or feeling like they're being too pushy. But if you're already in that conversation with a the licensor, they're, they're interested in your, in your artwork. Um, so you don't, it's not like you're, you know, very like down low on the ground and they're up here on this pedestal. Like they want to work with you just as much as you want to work with them. So, um, being transparent and just asking those questions, that's a perfectly natural question to ask. Like how much, how much do you um, predict I'll make from this or even better? I'll be like, can you give me a range or a scope? And then that way they don't feel like they're married into just one number. Um, and then they can give you a range of what they might assume you would make. And actually, something I want to touch on that you mentioned earlier, um, how when you've entered licensing agreements, it's usually just for like one, one photograph. So that used to be the case for me as well. People, uh, brands would only be interested in just, a st it's called standalone, a standalone illustration or design. And it was, you know, it was good to still get a licensing deal, but what if I wanted to, I mean, it's infinitely better to have five pieces licensed rather than just one. And so one thing that helped me a lot with that was creating collections out of my artwork. So if someone was interested in one illustration, for example, then I'd be like, oh great, it's actually part of this collection. And then I'll show them a nice layout of that design that they've chosen along with maybe like seven or, or a dozen others. And they're much more likely to be like, oh wow, you're right, these do work together. And they're more likely to pick up you know, maybe maybe they'll pick four more or six more or the whole bundle, you know, so showing them similar pieces that takes the work away from them. They don't have to dig through your portfolio and find pieces that match the, the hero image that they want. You're doing it for them and then you're increasing your chances of getting more licensing sales. Yeah, that's super smart. I I had a uh, had a magazine wanted to use one of my photos for I don't think it was the cover, but it was for some other thing that they do on every issue and. And they were like, yeah, can you give us a quote for an ex for exclusivity? And I was like, "It's you're just going to use it once for one magazine issue. I don't know. I, just don't, I was like, I don't understand why you're even asking for that. Like, <laughs> it was just such a strange question for the what they were trying to use it for. You know what I mean? Matt, that's kind of a tricky one because you can't necessarily put a dollar amount. I mean, I guess you could say number of issues sold, but then if it's also you know, available online, do they, do they have, is, is it, I mean, how can you, how can you quantify the, the actual price yeah. for that? For a situation like that, um, I would just ask them first. I'd be like, oh, okay, I, I'd like to know your budget for a scope of this magnitude and then um, let them throw the price down first before you come back with something that could be, you know, abysmally low. Right. Or scare them off with a, or scare them off. Yeah. I did that once before I, I had a license deal with REI for, they were building a new store and they wanted to use one of my photos for, have you been in REI before? Oh, I love REI. All my hiking they, gear. So you know how like when you go to the cashier, they have a huge mural behind the cashier. Mm -hmm. They wanted to use one of mine for this new store. And I was like, sweet. So then I reached out to a friend of mine. I'm like, Hey man, what do I charge him for this? Cause it's like, you know, like 40 feet wide or something. It's massive. And um, he's like, yeah, you should probably ask for like $5,000 or something like that. And I was like, seems fair. And I asked for that and like they didn't even send me mock-ups with my photo in like their blueprints and stuff. And I was like, oh, this is done deal. And they're like, yeah. no, we're good. They didn't even counter. They were like, we're good. Wow. <laughs> it was so Yeah, strange. that's super surprising. I figured 5,000 for, because 
just to have an image that's high res enough to be printed at that scale, that takes a professional, that takes professional equipment, which is an investment. Yeah, that's surprising. Yeah, man, even more so in situations where you just, where you truly have no idea, just put the ball in their court because they're not, not going to answer the question. I mean, um, and if they ask you first, you can just put it back on them and they're not going to be like, no, you, you know, it's like, they'll, they'll answer the question. Right. What is, I feel like there's a book about negotiating. It's called price. Never Split the Difference. It's amazing. Oh, okay. It's a, yeah, never Split the Difference. Okay. Well, I was just going to say, I feel like I've heard before that the first person that ta- that gives a number loses. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's um, so the author, <laughs> it's uh, oh God, Chris Voss. And uh, yeah, the book is called Never Split the Difference. And he used to be an ex- Okay, I think that I don't want to like butcher this, but I think it's right. I think he used to be an ex FBI hostage negotiator. And so he opens every chapter with like a real world example of some hostage negotiation that either went right or terribly wrong and then explains like how business negotiation tips could actually have made a difference in this hostage negotiation. So it's it's not a dry read by any means. It's really entertaining. And uh, yeah, I've read that book probably three times. And especially when I was doing so much negotiation, uh, which I do again, far less of now since I'm working with an agent and they just go out on my behalf and pitch for me. But, you know, you still negotiate in everyday life situations. Um, And I still negotiate when I am doing either, you know, commissioned work or something that's out of the scope of licensing. Um, So those negotiation skills still come into play. But yeah, never give the first number. That's uh, that's probably chapter one. Yeah, it's like it stands. It works for like, you know, job offers too. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I hate it when companies are like, what's your salary expectation? It's like, you tell me. <laughs> you <know? laughs> That's probably how I'd answer that question now, but I don't know if it'd fly. Right. They're like, well, you just need to give us a number. I'm like, no, you need to give me a number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, honestly, that's something, too, that a lot of a lot of artists, they, they kind of shy away from from even entering into those contract negotiations in the first place because they don't. It's conflict. You know, people are afraid of being, I don't know, just like, I guess, just the idea of conflict. And I used to be that way, too. And then I just got to a point where I'm like, you know what? Business is business. And none of this is personal. Um, just asking transparent. I've never had a combative contract negotiation. I've done them on Zoom. They're usually by email. And they're all very pleasant and nice and they're very straightforward. So, you know, if the company is asking you to create something for them that they'll, that they'll pay you for, you should definitely be upfront and clear about what those expectations are in terms of that payment. Yeah, I was in a, the NFL asked, reached out to me a while ago and they wanted me to do this photo shoot in Arizona before the Super Bowl. Oh, cool. And, um, I had never done anything like that before, and I was like, I have no idea. And they wanted me to give them a price, and I was like, how does a $1,000 a day sound? And they were like, that's it? I'm like, oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Yeah, when they agree, when anyone agrees too quickly, that's when I know I screwed up. I'm like, God, I could have asked for so much more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you feel terrible, but... Yeah, yeah. Well, we... We could all we could all hope to be so lucky, but how do you track your licenses if you have a bunch of them? Because you know, if you got okay, I've got this panda, and I can only sell it on stationery in China, and you know, like, how do you keep yeah. track of all that? <laughs> 
So that's actually one of the main reasons I signed on with an agency to represent me back in 2018. So before that, I was I was like saying no to a lot of exclusive agreements. I mean, I let Target in because I'm like, well, I can't say no to Target. So they'll be my one and only exclusive. And then someone else reaches out and I'm like, oh, but I really want to work with Home Goods. Okay, I'll do one more exclusive. But it just kind of got to the point where I, I couldn't manage all of that and I couldn't keep track of it. And so the idea of violating a contract, I mean, that like keeps me up at night. So. Um, I was like, I can't, I can't keep my, I can't keep doing it this way. Um, so yeah, I started researching agencies, um, specific. And when I say agent, there's a lot of different types of agents out there. So, um, if you are a mural painter, you can work with an agent that's going to help you get commissioned pieces and the rate that they take, because part of working with an agent is you split your income with the agent. Um, and so a mural painter, maybe they're, maybe they're divide with their agent and I'm not a muralist. I'm just going to totally um, make this number up, but maybe it's like a an eighty twenty split where the artist gets eighty percent of the um, income because they're doing most of their work. They're doing a commissioned piece. It lives there on this wall. It's one and done. That's kind of the life of it. Um, but for what I do, um, I do surface design is kind of that, and, and art licensing is kind of that that category. And so I have an agency that represents me specifically looking for any way that they can take work that I did yesterday or 10 years ago and get it licensed on as many products as possible. So, um, I mean, if you look around the room you're in right now, you're going to see surface design on something. Um, and maybe it's on like a throw pillow or a rug or wallpaper or on the shirt you're wearing. And so surface design is, is literally everywhere. So, um, yeah. So when I work with an agent, what they do or agency, uh, what they do is they go to trade shows, they meet with manufacturers, distributors, anyone that needs licensed artwork, and then they facilitate those connections. And so, yeah, so that's actually been been awesome for me because now I, I, I haven't sent a cold email since I signed on with that agency. And man, cold calling is the worst. So, um, I mean, that was one of the main reasons. So yeah, hiring an agent so that they could keep that, that all organized. Like I, I was, I was losing track of my contract, not physically losing track of my contracts. I keep them all very organized on my, uh, on my computer, but in terms of like what was exclusive, the duration, what products, what territories, all of that, I was just getting really overwhelmed with it. And I kind of hit this plateau with my licensing income because um, I was trying to do it all myself. And I realized I got to a point where I couldn't scale unless I, I got help. And so that's, that's the point where I decided to sign on with an agency. So not only do they keep my contracts organized, but they're going out, pitching me, getting more work on my behalf. And I can kind of step back a little bit and focus on the things that I am uniquely good at in the licensing world, which is creating artwork that is going to sell really well. Like that, that is my strong suit, but you know, redlining contracts, like I'll do it if I have to, but uh, someone else is going to do it way better than me anyway. So yeah. And then, like, how would somebody go about trying to find an agency that made sense to work with? So I would start just by doing a lot of Google, like just a lot of Googling. So when I was researching agencies I wanted to work with, um, I spent about a month um, where basically part like 20 hours a week, like part time, um, all I was doing was researching agencies, making notes, um, I wasn't contacting anyone yet because before I actually reached out to an agency, I wanted to make sure that I had everything, like I had all my stuff together and I was ready, I was ready to, to make my big pitch, right? So yeah, I, I did a lot of research. That's where I talked with other artists that did have representation. I heard a lot of horror stories, like it's not uncommon to sign on with an agency and have it not be a good fit. 
Um, but the good news is um, there's contracts for that. There's, there's term limits. So if you do sign on with someone and it's not a good fit, it's never infinite, right? There's, there's always going to be a time where that partnership ends. Um, but then I also talked to a lot of people who loved their representation. Um, I've spoken with um, some friends and one of them, she has a literary agent that she gets a lot of great deals out of. They have a great working relationship. And um, yeah, the agent helps her pitch to publishers to get the best deal possible. And so, yeah, so I did that, that month of part-time hardcore research. And then um, I did what you do. I did what you do at the end of a long research, which is I, I, I took no action. I just got overwhelmed by the possibilities. And then I just sat on it. And then a year <laughs> later, <laughs> yeah, a year later, the agency that was actually at the top of my list uh, they reached out to me to see if I was interested in working with them. So then I had to do that whole thing where you like play it cool and you're like, oh, well, maybe tell me more. But it, like inside, I was like, oh, my God, it's like the number one on my list. They reached out to me. How serendipitous is this? So. Um, so, yeah, that that was pretty much how that journey went. That's really cool. All right. Well, I wanted to totally shift gears. I know that you uh, you do art retreats and I would love for you to tell us about those art retreats and kind of how you started doing them and what they're all about. Yeah. So I just wrapped up my third annual retreat. Um, the first one was in France. The second one was in Spain. And the one that I just got back from was in Morocco. So the way that these retreats work, I only do one a year. Um, it's a small group, like 10 to 16 creatives. And what we do is we gather together for a week of like part vacation, part watercolor sessions, and then part business workshops. So uh, I co-host these retreats with my friend Logan Elliott. Uh, he's also a creative business coach. So it really made this kind of perfect combination for uh, co-hosting these retreats together. So yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. We kind of get together. It's all um, attendees who are interested in growing the um, kind of their creative business, but also interested on going on an epic vacation and also interested in just watercoloring by the pool and relaxing. So uh, yeah, I think overall, I would say the biggest impact for me doing these retreats is just probably just that community aspect um, because, because of my lifestyle, the way that I teach online, the way I travel constantly, um, I don't really have very many in-person interactions with my community, uh, with my students, my followers, just any of that. Um, I, I never see people face to face. Uh, so these retreats are really a way to um, actually meet these people. And usually what happens is we form these lasting bonds and I get to meet people and connect with people that are doing the same things that I'm doing or something that they want to be doing. And it's, it's all people that value their creativity and potentially making a living with it. So I, I get as much value from these retreats probably as, as my guests do from me. So it's a, it's a pretty special, pretty special event. For next year, I don't know yet. We're, we're still kind of uh, shortlisting places um, around the world where we could do one. So I don't want to repeat the same country. I want to try something new. So, so we'll see. I like it. I mean, you said Spain. Uh, I, did, I did a trip to Spain this year. It's, it's pretty awesome there. So oh, where'd nice you go? Choice. I was on the northern coast um, in Oviedo and then all along the north coast. Okay, I was on the southern coast for my retreat, Andalusia. Okay, yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing country. Oh, yeah, it was beautiful. All right, well, you also host online classes for creatives. What can someone expect when they sign up? Because I'm assuming photographers would fit right into that. Yeah, honestly, photographers would fit in for 
like, I mean, benefiting from watching online classes and also potentially teaching them as well. So I've been um, teaching online since 2016, I think. Um, and that's, yeah, that's when I got started teaching on a platform called Skillshare. Uh, now I have classes hosted through my own platform as well as Skillshare. So I have the subscription-based classes through Skillshare if you're into subscription models. And then I have the a la carte, you know, individual purchases um, through my own website. So when I'm putting my classes together, I'm basically just like talking and, and talking to the camera. I'm thinking about where I was back in those early days of my career, you know, back in like 2013 when I was trying to figure some stuff out. And there is just so much that I didn't know back then that would have just massively benefited uh, my career path and trajectory. But, you know, it's not like you're just inherently born knowing all of these things. You learn them the hard way. So in my classes, I'm trying to, yeah, kind of get rid of some of those obstacles and be like, hey, this is how I screwed up. Don't do this thing. Instead, if I were to do it over again, I would do it this way. So, um, yeah, like I'll give you an example. So one of my most actually my most popular class from last year is called uh, Blooms and Shrooms, Draw Fun and Funky Art in Procreate. So Procreate is an app for your iPad. It's a digital drawing app. So I create a lot of my illustrations now for licensing on my iPad just using a stylus and the app Procreate. It's, it's really powerful. So that class is broken down into like these little bite-sized chunks, like mini lessons, so like mini video tutorials. But um, you know, in addition to proceeding through the class and learning how to draw a standalone mushroom and flower illustration throughout those videos. I'm also peppering in a bunch of insider tips and kind of the insights that I've gained over the years into the art licensing world. So things like color palettes that sell really well, um, strategies for working on layered files. It's because art directors require this. Um, even like the motif choice itself for that class. Um, mushrooms are one of the most sought after trends in surface design right now. Actually, that probably translates really well to photography. I mean, mushroom everything is just is blowing up. So, you know, as a student, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. So yeah, as a student, you know, you're, you're following along with, in that case, it's a drawing tutorial. But then while you're doing so, you're also learning so much knowledge about this industry of surface design at the same time. So, um, yeah, that's kind of a walkthrough. So at this point, I think I've got, I've got 25 classes and I've been doing them for, I think, let me do the math. I think like seven six or seven years now. Yeah, so I do about one class a quarter, sometimes like two a year. So I don't really churn them out. Uh, I put a lot of I put a lot of curation and, and care and thought into each one. But yeah, it's 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 incredibly fulfilling. You know, I, I started my career just doing art licensing and print on demand. And that afforded me the freedom to be able to travel wherever I want in the world and live life on my own terms, which is awesome. Um, but then by starting my online classes, you know, at this point, I have over half a million students. And that kind of, um, I guess, the, the feeling I get from being able to reach out and help someone else, that, that provides fulfillment on a completely different level than just um, the artwork that I create does. So I love both, um, and, but they both kind of fulfill me in different ways. I love that. And so the scale that you're, you've been able to achieve, I'm, I'm guessing that it's been achieved through both the sheer number of classes that you teach, but also the platforms that you're affiliated with. Is that how that works? Yeah, absolutely. So I started out, I did my first online class 
as a favor to Society6. So Society6 is that print-on-demand website that I had a lot of success, well, still do today, but that's the one that allowed me to actually quit my job way back in 2014, 2015. When did I quit? Something around there. Um, But yeah, so they they reached out to me in, uh, I think, 2016, and they asked if I would put together a class um, teaching other artists how to get involved with print-on-demand and the benefits of websites like theirs. And so um, at the time, you know, Society6, they were my they were my main income source. And so if they, you know, said monkey dance, I would I would dance. So uh, I was like, okay, you know, I didn't really envision myself as a teacher, but I was like, you know what, they're they're good to me. I'll be good to them. So um, we did this in partnership with Skillshare. So I worked with the Skillshare team um, for about two or three months leading up to this, really just hammering in an outline of what the class would be. And then um, when we were ready for filming, I flew up to New York and met them in their studios. I think we filmed it. It was either a day or two days. I've done a, I've done a few classes with them in their offices since then. And yeah, it was kind of terrifying. Like I had this whole outline and I was ready to go and I was working with a producer and she would ask me questions from my outline and I was answering everything. But I was so nervous about speaking in front of a camera that I I don't even remember. Like someone's like, oh, how was it? It's like, I remember walking into the room, getting adjusted for the microphone. And then I pretty much just blacked out until we finished uh, filming. And (laughs) so that's like, that was my level of nerves for, for doing that. But then um, they edited the class. They sent it over to me to review before we published it. And you you can't even tell that I have no idea, I have no memory of what I'm saying. Like it sounds pretty good. So um, <laughs> yeah, I was just you know high high nerves. Um, but yeah, so that experience it was um, it was traumatizing. I was like, oh god, being in front of a camera is the scariest thing ever. I'm never doing that again. But then after the class published. We did it for free, so anyone could watch that class for free. Um, there was no membership, no payment required. And so what happened is a lot of people ended up watching that class because a lot of people were interested in print-on-demand. Society6 is a huge platform. They were promoting the class. Skillshare is a massive online education learning platform, so they promoted it. And then what happened is I got a lot of eyes on it. And um, what really impacted things for me was... Um, I got a lot of reviews streaming in, so I was able to see what students were saying about my class. It was a, I, we agreed to a flat fee, so it didn't really matter on my end how many students watched it. Like I got paid up front, and then that was that. And so I wasn't really expecting too much. But then, you know, I had, I mean, several thousand students watch the class in the first few weeks. I, I don't even know what that one is up to at, at this point, but. Um, yeah, it, it, made, it made a big impact on a lot of people. So I was reading the reviews. People were talking about how they didn't even know that business model existed, what a big difference it was making. And um, I started getting emails from people, messages on social media, asking for advice, asking me to explain maybe something I mentioned in the class, but I'm going into more detail on it. And so I started just responding to emails. And then the emails kind of piled up and piled up. And then I'm like, okay, I need a more sustainable way to do this. So I started an FAQ page on my website, just answering questions about print on demand. And pretty soon like that just became way too many FAQs. It was just like scrolling was infinite. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna start, I'm gonna start blog posts. So I started blogging about just like separate chunks of things that I learned over the years with our licensing and print on demand. And then it just kind of went full circle. And I was like, okay, I'm getting a lot of traffic. This is going well. Maybe I should just do another class. And like, this seems to be what, what my audience actually like really wants from me. So yeah, the second class I did all on my own. I did not have a professional production team. I actually, I filmed it in a coffee shop in Thailand in Chiang Mai where I was living at the time. 
and like throughout the intro and outro videos, you just hear like geckos chirping and people talking <laughs> and like glasses clinking. I was like, why did I go here to film? But um, yeah, so that's that's kind of grown, you know, again, just like everything else in my business, slowly growing, slowly improving over the years. And and now it's, you know, I, I no longer just black out out of fright when I'm in front of a camera, like I can be a little bit more, co more coherent like I am with you right now. Um, but yeah, it's. So now it's, it's, yeah, it's grown into, um, yeah, that big part of my brand. Um, now I'm not just seen as someone that creates designs for licensing to stores, but I'm also seen as an educator in my space. So that, that part is, is pretty cool and pretty fulfilling. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, so you mentioned Skillshare. Are you doing some of the classes through your own website or is it all through another platform or how are you distributing the, the education classes? So Skillshare was, you know, the first platform I got involved with, with online education, and they've been, they've been really, really good to me over the years. I mean, they're the reason I was able to build up this, um, you know, audience of students to the magnitude that it is today. So I'm not taking any of my classes off Skillshare, even the ones that I have available on my own platform for individual purchase. Um, it's, that's just if someone wants to spend, you know, 45 to $65 on, on an individual class and own it for, for life or have access to it for life rather than a subscription model. So what I tell my students is, you know, choose what works best for you. If you want to be able to access this class at any point um, for years to come, then maybe individual purchase is best. But if you want access to all of my classes, plus all of the other uh, teachers that teach on Skillshare, all of their classes as well, then maybe Skillshare is the better choice. So um, yeah, I give my students both options. But yeah, all of the classes I put on Skillshare, they're all still up there. They're not going anywhere. Um, but then as I continue creating more content, um, I'll still put more Skillshare classes up there. But I'm getting to this point where I ran customer surveys a few months ago, and a lot of people are interested in more, more interaction with me in some sort of, um, yeah, like educational component. So I'm thinking about putting something together in the future where um, maybe it's something where we have a Slack group and get on weekly Zoom calls and there's more of an interaction between me and my students rather than just me commenting on student projects and answering questions on an online forum because, you know, that you are losing a little bit of that connection and that's something I'd like to, to kind of introduce into my offerings. Yeah, that makes sense. And is Skillshare like a, another licensing setup where you get like a percentage or something like that? Yeah, so with Skillshare, the way that their um, payment structure works for teachers is I get ba uh, paid based on referrals. So referring a new student to Skillshare, I'll get a cut of that, and that changes all the time. And then, the, but the primary way that I get paid through Skillshare is they do a profit share, which means um, oh. every month, yeah, they'll have like a um, X dollar amount in their profit share pool. Like, let's say it's a million dollars. And then um, the way that, that that money is allocated towards teachers on the platform is by minutes watched of classes. So if I had you know, 10% of all minutes watched on the platform, then I would earn 10% of that profit, that profit share pool. I, that's, I, I don't earn 10% of their profit share. It's much, much lower than that. But um, yeah. that's, that's the way that, they're, uh, that their payments work. Cool. Uh, why do you think people should aim for a more passive income stream? <laughs> oh man, passive income all the way. So, okay, so I, you know, I used to work that nine to five job and I, I enjoyed it, but at the same time, 100% of my income was coming through my designer job. So if I got fired, uh, I, I'll, I would lose 100% of my income. So um, that's, 
is not something I pursue anymore. So now I'm all about recurring revenue streams, passive income, plus diversifying my income. So um, whenever I have an opportunity to work on a new project or you know expand my, my earnings in any way, the first thing I always ask myself is, is how is this going to impact me in the long haul? And passive income is always going to be the stronger answer there. So by setting up those systems, you know, up front and doing all the hard work, for example, painting a watercolor hibiscus, right? Getting that all done first, scanning it, putting it into my art licensing portfolio, that one piece can potentially earn me revenue for, you know, months or years or decades to come. So that's kind of the goal. So rather than getting this big chunk of, of you know, money up front for something, um, I'd rather just get, you know, pennies, pennies trickling in for, for years because in the long haul, that's going to, um, that's going to be a better sum. So the reason that um, passive income, you know, recurring revenue, all of that is really important to me is because it gives me a lot of freedom and it gives me a lot of buffer room. So now, since I have these diversified income streams set up, you know, I can um, earn income from our licensing through a few different brands at any given time. I'm also earning royalties from the print on demand sites I sell through, even for, again, artwork that I painted years ago that's still selling. I earn income on classes that I filmed a few months ago. I earn it on classes I filmed a few years ago. I also earn affiliate commissions on, you know, art and tech supplies that I recommend on my website. So what every single thing here has in common is that I set up those systems systems once and then that income just trickles in over time. So it's not like I set it up and forget about it. Like it does take a lot of upkeep. You know, I'm constantly putting out new classes. I'm adding new illustrations to my portfolio, um, but it's really reliable income. So if one income stream dries up, I still have a lot more to keep me going. Um, actually, that that happened to me in 2020. So when uh, the pandemic was starting back in March, um, online or sorry, in-store licensing dried up really quickly. So when a lot of uh, stores were closing their doors, um, a lot of my income back then was from in-store licensing deals, like being in-store with Nordstrom or in-store with Target. And all of a sudden there were no customers shopping in those stores. So I had, you know, many, many calls with my agents, you know, trying to like, like hey, what's going on? When is this going to change? And they're like, we can't predict it either. So my art licensing income, you know, back then it dried up about 50%. So that felt really devastating, but at the same time, because I have diversified income streams, um, what was everybody doing, you know, during the stay-at-home days, um, if they weren't, you know, baking cookies or watching, you know, what it Tiger Tiger, Tiger King, King. Yes. <laughs> which I did watch, which I did watch, it was awful. Um, yeah, people were taking online classes, and so even though I lost half of my art licensing income. Uh, for those few months that everything was shut down, uh, the income I was earning through um, online education just like super spiked. And so it didn't just balance out, like it actually I netted out um, on, on a higher level because then when art licensing kind of came back, people started shopping in store again. Um, the people were still interested in online classes and still taking them. So that just kind of goes to show the power of like diversifying your income streams and then having passive income set up. You know, the other benefit is later this year, I'm taking most of November off. I'm going to go on a safari in Africa with some friends, and then we're going to hike up Kilimanjaro. So I'm going to be completely off the grid for a minimum of two weeks. So 
even though I'm taking all that time off in November, it's probably not going to affect my income very much that month. Um, I might not be posting to social media as much or promoting my courses or my um, designs, but students will still be able to purchase my classes online. Customers will still be buying my phone cases or wall art at Anthropology. Um, the systems will continue running without me. So by having those recurring revenue um, systems set up, it's, that's able to happen. Whew. Nice. Yeah. Make money while you sleep. It's, it's, it's incredible. I thought it might be fun to do a little bonus episode for our Patreon listeners when we're done with this, all about the digital nomad lifestyle. So we'll save that for our people that are helping me have a passive income. Um, thank, thank you to those people. Um, but uh, my last question for you is, who do you recommend for the podcast? Who are some people that we should learn more about? I think you should definitely talk to Sean Dalton. He's a, an actual photographer. Um, he's one of my friends from that I met originally in Chiang Mai when I went there to uh, become a digital nomad for the first time. He, uh, he took my artist headshots. He was the first person to ever do that. But um, yeah, what he does now is he travels around the world and he creates beautiful photographs, and then he also has online courses. Um, he sells, uh, I think they're called presets. I'm not a photographer, so if I'm butchering that, sorry. They look like filters. So yeah, he, he also does the recurring revenue, multiple income streams, um, and he's a full-time traveler. So definitely talk to him. He's a cool guy and an incredibly talented photographer. Nice. Also going, let's go back to Chiang Mai. So two other artists uh, that would be great to speak with would be Charlie Clements. Um, Charlie and Brooke Glazer, uh, they're both women. And Charlie and Brooke, I've hung out with both of them in Thailand also. They're both doing um, really similar things to what I'm doing. So they're making a living uh, licensing their artwork. Uh, they're both artists, really, really talented. But the, the big thing that they also do is they have online courses teaching others how to do the same thing. So even though we're all kind of in the same, the same category of being um, you know, online educators plus artists, everyone, you know, everyone has their own unique artistic voice, their unique teaching voice, and everyone does it a little bit differently. So I think both uh, Charlie and Brooke and Sean would have great insights there. I love it. Well, Kat, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for all of your wisdom. And I think anyone listening would be very impressed with the, what you've been able to accomplish. So congratulations. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Of course. Well, thank you to Kat for the wonderful chat on today's episode. I know that I learned a ton and I think our listeners will have as well. If you're curious about her digital nomad lifestyle, be sure to tune into our bonus episode on Patreon. For just $5 per month or $50 a year, you can support the podcast financially while gaining access to bonus episodes like this one. You can also get access to episodes before anyone else, often months in advance for just $10 a month. Thank you to everyone who is already supporting the show. If you're interested in supporting, please go to patreon.com forward slash fstop and listen or check out the link in the show notes. Lastly, please check out our show notes for some awesome things that Kat has to offer you for free. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.